Hello, I'm Rory McKiernan, author of Hitching for Hope, and you're very welcome to the Love and Courage podcast. Huge thanks, as always, to all you wonderful patrons and supporters who chip in to support the podcast over at loveandcourage.org. My guest in this episode is writer and broadcaster Keith Walsh. Keith is also the host of the popular Keith Walsh podcast. And at the time of recording, he had just completed a tour of his debut play, which is called Pure Mental, which you'll hear about very, very soon. We also got talking about Keith's 20 year career in radio, his thoughts on success, therapy, relationships, parenting, alcohol, masculinity, and lots, lots more. As always, your support in promoting, sharing, rating and reviewing this podcast is hugely appreciated, especially as it helps get voices like Keith out into the wide, wide world. And if you're new to the podcast, please be sure to hit subscribe in your app and you'll get notified of upcoming episodes. And do have a look through the archive of great conversations once you get finished with this one. Now, without further ado, let's get started with this conversation with Keith Walsh. Keith, you're very welcome to the Love and Courage podcast. Can you tell me a bit about where you're joining me from today and how life is for you at the moment? I am joining you from, first of all, thanks for having me, Rory. Uh, I am joining you from beautiful Newbridge in County Kildare, just off the Curra. Um, what an amazing facility we have here at the Curra, which has gotten us through many a lockdown, just being able to go out and uh, run and um, skip around in the fields uh, with the sheep and the rabbits. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I work here. I'm in my office at the moment. This, I work from here and... Uh, it's not very exciting, but we're, it looks like we're going to be here in this house possibly for another Christmas. So, so it's all good, isn't it? <laughs> so, so go back to the, the skipping uh, with the rabbits and the sheep. Is that something you do partake in and by day or by night or what goes on there now, Keith? Because you've intrigued me. Look, it's there. It's available to me if I want. You know, the sheep are always more than willing to actually the sheep run away. But, you know, the rabbits at night will be there. Um, I, uh, I like to gamble, um, around the Curra and it's, it's good for, uh, the head getting out and walking. And, um, it's, it's great. The Curra is great because it's just a big flat open area of and slightly small hills of just green that can never be built on, uh, is owned by the people and the army. Uh, there's never going to be a hotel built there. There's never going to be a high rise apartment block it's always going to be there and even if you don't get out on it every day or even if you miss a week of going for a walk in the curry you know it's there for you and that's an amazing beautiful thing are you a kildare man by birth or what's your links to the area i'm a i'm a blowing uh and boy they don't let you forget it i know they're they're (laughs) i'm a blowing to newbridge but my wife is from newbridge she was born in newbridge uh, I'm originally from the Midlands in a place called Athlone in County West Meath. Um, a lot of people ask me if my dad is in the army because I moved from one garrison town to the other. And actually, he's from Kilkenny, which is another garrison town, but he's not, he's not in the army. He's just a fan of living in towns where there's, where there's an army barracks. Yeah, he, he, he's, he's looking for some protection there, but it sounds things. Uh, Keith, so can you tell me a little bit about the young Keith and what was going on for that fella and what was going on in his head and in his house and in his family and his community? Maybe take me back to when you were around seven or so. Jesus, this is a very, this is very heavy, Rory. Um, Not necessarily. <laughs> um, I actually, I, I, I talk a little bit about 
<laughs> well, it is. <laughs> well, uh, well, I put it into context for you. I've just finished uh, touring a play called Pure Mental that I wrote about my childhood and, and my adulthood and kind of my origin story, trying to figure out why my brain works the way it does and why I see things in a certain way. And to do that, I, I went to therapy and I went, you know, back into my childhood and I I wrote about the stories that I had in my head about my childhood and who I was and my upbringing. Um and I suppose on the face of it, like it was, it's quite, it was quite a nice upbringing. Uh, I lived in a housing estate in, in Athlone in, in, you know, uh, a fairly sizable, um, town in the Midlands. And I went to school there and, uh, yeah, I had four sisters, my mum and dad. Um, and I suppose unremarkable, really, just a regular kid going to school. Um, but you know, it was the age, you know, I suppose when I think back on it now, and this is not to sort of like blame anybody, point the finger, but, you know, the 80s were, were a difficult time for a kid to grow up. And, and I often say that, you know, there's a lot of kids kind of treated like second class, possibly third class citizens in Ireland. It's probably something we need to look at at some stage. Uh, but there's probably bigger, bigger issues that we need to deal with properly first. But, yeah, I mean, it, you know, there was no shortage of angry adults in those days. Um, uh, my own, you know, even my own parents would have, uh, we would have used physical violence as as punishment, and then and then you go into school, and it's the same thing. So, um, I suppose as a kid, I grew up uh, as I suppose if you want to get if you want to if I want to psychoanalyze this, I'm sure we're here. We might as well, you know, um, probably grew up as a people pleaser, um, trying to avoid conflict and trying to get by in the world by doing that, uh, which is which is difficult. Uh, I probably had a lot of anxiety I wasn't aware of. Um, you know, anxiety, just the way you feel when you're young, you think, well, that's how everybody feels. And then maybe you grow up and you realize, well, that's not actually how everyone feels. And that's not how you need to feel, um, which is new to me. And I'm, I'm learning, this is all the stuff I'm learning about myself in my forties. Um, but, uh, yeah, a, a strange, like a very normal upbringing for Ireland in the eighties. But for me, looking back on it now, that was strange. And it is strange for a lot of people. And a lot of people will identify uh, with that strangeness of growing up in a house where you might have had good times. But the problem was that the good times could turn into bad times so quickly that you never really got to enjoy the good times. And you're always just on your guard, um, especially around adults. And that was over my formative years. <laughs> Sorry to get all heavy straight away. You know, yeah. I hope this isn't a comedy podcast already. No, it is definitely not. I'm not. I don't. Uh, don't do a great line in in comedy myself. But uh, no, uh, like what's coming to mind there, Keith, is and firstly, thanks for um, for sharing that because um, I'm I'm very conscious that um, you know for anyone to, to divulge or reveal or, or share any of the more intimate parts of themselves, it's a privilege for others to hear it and and learn from it, but also to connect for with it because. You know, the truth is that there are echoes of that in so many of our own families and listeners and myself. And, and th there's components within us all. Um, but also then there's the multi-generational aspect that if we had these angry adults, then why were they angry? And, you know, did, where did they get it and what pressures were they under? And, and that's not to excuse anything, but it's the whole kind of gambit that once you start unpeeling the, the uh, proverbial onion or whatever, Pandora's box, it just opens up wider and wider. But for me, it, it's it's part of understanding who we are individually. But 
also as a country as well and trying to unpack ourselves a little bit. Yeah, and I think just on what you said, like it's that fear of uh, blame and pointing the finger and guilt and all that stuff sort of, you know, bundled up into one big weird uh, traumatizing package. And absolutely, like I in the play Pure Mental, I talk about my own mother especially and um, but it's not to point the finger, it's to try and understand where she was coming from as well and her experiences and, and what happened to her life. I mean, you know, one of the examples I gave with regards to my mother, like as she was taken out of school, she wasn't allowed to finish her own education, which was something that she would have loved to have done. So she kind of ended up in a situation where she didn't really have any control over, you know, uh, you know, the, the line is like, what about her hopes and what about her dreams, you know? Um, and, and where did that come from? And, you know, I would have some inkling of maybe her upbringing, although she's chosen not to share that with me. But and then where did that come from? So, I mean, as a country, we're 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 dealing with a lot of historical trauma, you know, I suppose going back to, you know, maybe 800 years and the Brits, we could look we could look that direction. But, we, you know, again, we don't want to point the finger, but also the famine and and then the rising and, you know, all these different things and the, and the effect of the Catholic church had on the country, you know, which, which shouldn't be, um, which definitely needs to be looked at. And it's our, the problem, the, the problem now isn't that we like, we, nobody wants to point the finger. It's just that we need to deal with this stuff and we need to be honest and we need to be transparent. And it's upsetting then when the report comes out about the mother and baby homes that the government tries to, the government tries to point the finger back at the families uh, instead of actually just dealing with what's in front of them and being generous and kind to the victims, uh, which yeah. was very upsetting for me because I thought that as a country we'd gotten to a stage where we could deal with this stuff properly. And my God, we went back, you know, just with that report and how we dealt with it, we took, we took a massive step back. And I think... yeah. Maybe for for people like myself and yourself and our generation, that was a bit of a shock. And I think we're still sort of like maybe rocking on our heels and wondering, well, how do we how do we deal with this? And how can we how can we affect change here? You know, it's very difficult. Yeah, for, for me, it's a it's about sort of emotional maturity and an emotional reckoning with our true selves and bringing our full selves to the table and not trying to run for the hills or bury it as as we see in the political realm, it's it's, it's a kind of a, a form of violent gaslighting that can be re-traumatizing to people to say, here's your five grand or your 40 grand, off you go. And that, that you know, no amount of compensation can make up for the denial of a reality for someone's experience. So I think what you're doing with your podcast and hopefully my own to some extent and, and just I know it's a bit of a cliche to get into it, but to have the conversations, you know, and I think it's one of the reasons I think what you're doing, what your play is particularly important is that you're literally putting yourself out there to provoke, hopefully, and stimulate and inspire others to maybe reflect. Or or was it for you like the motivation was a purely uh, cathartic for yourself? And or were you thinking about the social mission dimension? Were you thinking like maybe this can can add something to the to the national conversation. Yeah, I mean, obviously you'd hope that, but I mean, initially it was cathartic and, and, and it was through my sessions with, with my therapist, Luke, just writing down stories that were in my head and, and that's kind of where I ended up with the play um, and that's where it came from and that was obviously part of my therapy and my 
um, I suppose, healing for want of a better word. And then to, 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 I worked with a, with Janet Moran, who's a director, and she helped me fashion it and write it and make sure it looked like, you know, what a one man show looks like. And, um, I suppose at that stage it was like, okay, well, let's see what happens if people come along to watch a 40 year old man talking honestly about his experiences. Um, and it's not that anybody, I mean, I had, I had one person come along and review it and they were from one of the newspapers and they were like, oh, well, you know, <laughs> I don't know. They seem to review it. Yeah. Some stuff happened to him. He had a tough upbringing and some people died. Yada, 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 blah, blah, blah. And I think they were expecting something a bit more dramatic. And I suppose my point is that, okay, nothing really terrible happened to me, but I still have to deal with what did happen to me. And that's the case for everybody. Like, uh, if you had an idyllic childhood and you have very open conversations with your parents and everything is cool, that's, that's, you don't probably don't have to deal with anything. But whatever it is that's happened to you, if it's, if it, if it's not dealt with, it just, it festers and it creates problems. Yeah. And that's all I wanted to do was just to be stand up there and be honest and talk honestly. And people find it, it rubs people up the wrong way. People find it awkward. People want to point the finger and say, well, what, you know, I mean, it's something that I talk about in the play is like, well, Stop feeling sorry for yourself. Just get on with it. Um, why are you looking back? Why are you raking up all this old stuff and upsetting people? And it's um, it's about trying to figure out honestly and openly uh, what's going on in your own head, so you can be a better person and be a better influence to the people around you and behave yourself in a way that isn't passing on any trauma. Uh, and I have children, so I was very much, I'm very much aware of trying to, you know, not pass on any of my uh, you know, difficulties or, you know, <laughs> certainly not, I don't want to pass on my weird way of looking at the world and, and what, you know, and how I felt about things and people. Uh, I don't want to pass. I want to be, I want to have a more open conversation and a more honest relationship with my children and my wife. And that's ultimately um, my goal. And hopefully if people come along and see it and it has that effect on them alone, then that's a positive for me. So, Kate, just um, on, on the point of the reviewer, um, I, I'm going to take a, a stab and guess that that was a male reviewer. Am I right or wrong on that? Actually, you're wrong, Rory, which, is, uh -huh. which I was surprised by. And, <laughs> and I, can, I, can see, I can see why you thought that. And I was actually surprised because it was a kind of a little bit of like, oh, you know, what's this all about? It's not really about anything. And and the kind of the play isn't really about anything. It's just about me and my experiences and trying to f untangle them and trying to figure everything out. Um, mm. And that's the point. But yeah, she definitely seemed to have a more sort of like, there's nothing to see here. Um, yeah. Yeah. Maybe she just wasn't interested. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it, there's, a, there's a lot talked about men and men don't talk and men won't talk. And, you know, obviously my own prejudices and biases and stereotypes um, came into the picture there by taking my inaccurate guess about the gender of the reviewer. Um, because quite often, particularly my experiences, a lot of older lads in particular, not always the case, but often the case that there might be an experience there where this is seen as a, as you said yourself, like digging up the past or reductive or soft or overly feminine or whatever it might be. Um, but I suppose that's interesting then that when men do maybe start to open up a conversation that I believe is entirely necessary um, around your emotional world, 
um, that it can be met with a kind of a cynical or dismissive view. Now, obviously, from an artistic point of view, there's every right to dismiss something as not amazing or whatever. Um, but, you know, it, it, it can be difficult for men if they might be absolutely perfectly fine to open up about their emotional realm. But it's how people then might receive it can be additionally complex, whether it be by men or women. And um, it can leave people maybe unsettled. Um, so I don't know. It's I think that's a bigger thing around the, the masculinity dimension. Yeah, like I got a lot of the, the, the overwhelming majority of the feedback I got was that it started a conversation. Um, <clears throat> so it was like people who had left the theatre and then sort of messaged me afterwards and said, like, you know, two days later, we're still talking about it. We're not necessarily talking about the play, but talking about the 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 themes of the play and the, the things that they connected with within the play. So it was it was a conversation starter. And a lot of the times the conversation started between couples, husbands and wives and um and you know, especially as you said, men talking about their past experiences, because one of the things I talk about is that, you know, um my wife would have thought that I was sort of like the strong, silent type in that, like nothing ever fazed me and everything was grand, you know, and I never really, um, I never really stressed about anything. Whereas it was, that was just me pretending to my wife it was the person who, you know, a, I chose to marry, spend the rest of my life with and love the most in the world. And I, I in case my children listen to this, I love them the most in the world as well, but uh, you know, setting off in that in that married life, I've chosen to spend the rest of my life with this person, and still with that person, I'm not being completely honest with them because I'm pretending that everything is fine, everything's grand. I don't worry about anything, and actually, the truth is that I do worry about things. But I'm a being a man, and I'm keeping it from her because I think that's how I ha I'm supposed to behave, which I didn't realize I was doing. So, even in the that sacred space of being married or spending the even if you're not married but even if you're you know a, a, a two men deciding to spend the rest of their lives together a gay couple whatever it is but to be in that very um you know uh what's the word i'm reaching for it's um intimate relationship with somebody and that you're you're not in that relation you're not in this kind of relationship with anybody else in the world right but you're still lying to them because and you don't know your lines, but you're 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 playing the game. You're doing the thing that you think you're supposed to be doing. So you're not even being honest with yourself. So how could you be honest with them? Because you're also pretending to yourself that you're not worried and you're not stressed and everything's grand. So oftentimes within a relationship, there's a there's a weird sort of gap, and, and neither partner can figure out what's wrong because it's like we're not actually connecting here because one of us is is not being honest or both. Um, so selfishly, the play and therapy and all that kind of stuff was about me getting to that point where there was no gap or there was that we were intimate and, and I was honest and I was vulnerable. Vulnerable was, was a big, you know, big word for me and it unlocked a lot of things for me. Like, I mean, I remember Luke, my therapist, you know, talking about the word vulnerability and, um, you know, as a man, you kind of think, well, you're vulnerable if you don't, if you play hurling without a helmet, that's vulnerable, isn't it? Um, if you leave yourself open to a whack of the hurl across the head, that's being vulnerable. Like, I didn't really understand what he meant by being vulnerable. And then as he explained it to me, I was like, OK, so it's OK to admit that you don't have everything figured out. It's OK to admit that you haven't got a handle on stuff, that everything isn't grand. You don't have to pretend that 
that you can be totally honest and, you know, be upset and cry and, you know, tell your wife that, you know, I'm kind of freaked out about this situation, this scenario. And once I started to figure that out and live a more vulnerable life and a more honest life, it just changed things for me completely. I was able to, I was able to do things like meditate or I was able to do things like, um, uh, well, have proper conversation. I could, I could say things to like with my son, like if he was crying, you know, my instinct would be like, oh, you stop crying. You know, that's the instinct. But, you know, as I as I as I discovered this whole vulnerability world, I was, well, it's all, I was able to say to him, you know, I had no, I remember an occasion where my son was crying and my instinct was say, oh, stop crying. It'll be grand. Whereas I was able to go, I, I kind of ca- caught myself and I went back to myself. Actually, do you know what? No, have a cry. And that was, that was fine, you know? Um, so it's, it's all those things yeah. that once you sort of start discovering this whole vulnerability and honest side of life, things improve in, in a beautiful way. Um, what were, if you don't mind sharing, Keith, some of the uh, factors along the way that sort of propelled this um, I'm going to use the journey word, but propel the journey or, or the uh, the change in gear, you know, from the guy who's to some extent pretending or getting on with it to the guy who suddenly realizes or maybe wasn't sudden at all. You know, what, what were the, the considerations that led you into therapy or led you to realize that something needed to be looked at? Yeah. So, I mean, it was it, it, the, the the catalyst was and it happens to a lot of men in their 40s. Like I, I lost I lost a job that I liked doing. <clears throat> I was the breakfast show. I was a presenter on the breakfast show in 2FM. And that finished up sort of suddenly. My reaction to that was to feel an immense amount of rejection and sadness and, and, and be upset and angry. Um, And it was my wife kind of said to me at that point, she said, would you consider like talking to somebody and, and you know, and it kind of, I suppose it had been something in the back of my mind, but not really. Um, I was quite good at my, at, you know, making sure I was, I was looking after my body physically. Um, I was quite good at, you know, the food I ate and stuff like that. I, you know, I was good at, you know, going to the gym and going for a run and all that. And keep, but I never really looked after my mental health. And I don't think that it, it wasn't like I hit, it wasn't like I was in, it wasn't like anything bad had happened to me, but I was definitely feeling upset and angry. Um, I don't think I'd quite had a breakdown, but I'm sure I was probably heading that way if I hadn't gone to speak to someone, if I hadn't dealt with it. Um, so, yeah, so I went to a therapist and, and as a man, I was going to a therapist going, well, I'm going to go to this man and he's going to tell me he's going to fix everything for me. So I just need my head fixed and, and he's going to tell me what to do next uh, to make sure that I'm the best version of myself to do the next job in radio. Like I had, I suppose I, I realized later I um, attached a lot of my, who I felt I was as a person to my success in my work and my career and my job. So that's why it affected me so much. Um, and that's why I felt so devastated by it because I was like, well, who am I if I'm not, this guy on the radio and if that's not even working and if RT don't want me then that you know what's the point or what you know what am I um and that was the catalyst but that it wasn't like I went to Luke and he fixed everything I went to Luke and we chatted 
and I figured out a few things about myself over time. Um, and one of them was the reason for the catalyst was that I connected so much of my success as a person to my job, which I now realize was wrong. Um, uh, your what you do is, you know, what your job is is inconsequential in that you should do stuff that you like doing, but don't do something that you think is going to impress other people. Like do it for yourself. Anyway, so that was kind of like the catalyst. And then the big realization was, ah, I know why I felt so upset because I connected. I was so connected with this. You know, I, I liked being the guy going, even to my own parents, like saying, oh, I'm on, I'm, I'm doing the breakfast show on 2FM. I'm anti-successful. Isn't that great? Um, and that meant a lot to me to be able to say that. Whereas now, I don't think I'd even ever bring up my job to somebody if I was having a conversation with them. Um, and weirdly enough, just to sort of finish off that train of thought, at the same time, even though I connected, I was so connected, I connected success as a person to my job, even though I did that, at the same time, if I spoke to somebody about my job, my work, and they asked me how how the job was going or how work was going, if I met a stranger at a party, oh, you do the breakfast show on 2FM, um, do you like it? How's it going? And I, I wouldn't know genuinely what the answer to that was. I would say to them, well, do you like it? How do you think it's going? Um, I wouldn't even, I'd be looking for other people to tell me how it's going. Am I enjoying it? Is it being, am I being, is it successful? Is it, is it a ratings hit? Are the bosses enjoying it? That's how I knew if I liked it. So I couldn't actually tell anybody whether I actually liked it or not. I was like, well, I'm doing it. I, they haven't sacked me yet. I'm turning up every day. I was very good, very dedicated, very good at getting up and getting on with the job. But I couldn't have told you whether I was enjoying it or not, which is very strange. Looking back now, Keith, uh, with, you know, just in the rear view mirror, do you, do you think you enjoyed it? You know, it's funny because and one thing people often ask me is like, oh, what would you say to your younger self? You know, if you could talk to them, and I would definitely say go to therapy because you'll enjoy everything a lot better if you're, you know, uh, I don't know if that's where I would have ended up. But yeah, I feel like if I if I could have, you know, at the start of the breakfast show, gone to therapy and figured out a way of, and figured out a way of connecting with my emotions, I either would have enjoyed it or I would have just left. You know, yeah. uh, it wouldn't have been um, there wouldn't have been that. Like, I definitely can look back and think of moments that I enjoyed and I can definitely think back of people that I worked with that I really liked and I really liked working with them and I really enjoyed being in their presence. Definitely, you know. Um, but whether I enjoyed the job, whether I enjoyed the stress, the cut and thrust of that industry, um, I wouldn't be able to say for sure. I mean, there's probably moments where I would have told people to go themselves. Um, but I was but in that but I was quite passive in the, in my role in there. So in 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 you know so, you know so it was, it's hard to know but yeah there was definitely people i enjoyed spending time with and moments i really enjoyed but it's, i don't know i couldn't tell you um is there is there propensity for um you know but by by many definitions you would have been considered successful you know and it is there, you know, so you, you kind of meet other people that fit that label or category as well. And I'm just wondering, is there propensity within that those environments, particularly in, say, the entertainment type world, that there's this superficial dimension that doesn't allow the reality to cut through? 
Does that make any sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. Like it's it's in it's yeah, it's interesting that you say that because like a lot of people, not a lot of people, some people have kind of messaged me uh, on social media or something when I post something, and they would say something like, "You're just bitter that you lost that you're not the." you know, the breakfast show presenter anymore. You're not uh-huh. working RT anymore. You're just bitter. And now you're lashing out. You weren't good enough. Get used to it. And in a way, there's a certain amount of truth to that because if I had continued within RT and if, if RT had said to me, Keith, you're amazing. The breakfast show is finishing up, but we want to replace Ryan Tuberty with you and you're going to be on the Late Late Show from now on. I would have been like, I would have gone with it. I would have been like, okay, great. This is my next thing. This is also great, isn't it? I'm being successful because these people want to put me in this position, which is which is a successful thing. So now I'm at the top of my success. So now everything is really great. And I just keep ignoring the panic attacks I'm having. Um, so that's the problem in that, yeah, as long as everything's going well and you're still, you're getting the next job and whatever, you don't really question it. There are people that I have met that I have looked at and I've worked with and are very successful. And I would look at them and I would be like, what is going on inside that head of yours? Because you're not in any way connected with the realities of the earth and other people. And you are absolutely, uh, I remember somebody describing somebody as like, uh, I don't know who it was. I think it was Tommy Tiernan. And I was, I was in his company and he, he, he talked about the other person that was in the room and he was like, if I, if I, he tried to play him like a guitar because he was so tightly, tightly wound up. He was like, I could get a good chord out of you now. Like, you know, he's like, ding, because this person was so definitely present in the room and with us and having a conversation, but also so fucking tightly wound up that it was, it's just something, I'm, I'm sure you've come across people like that yourself, like that they're definitely there in the present and they're doing probably a good job, but you just wonder, are, in what way are they connected with the people around them and t- with themselves because they just seem so tightly wound. And I think uh, in the same way that sometimes to look after yourself, you have to put the blinkers on and ignore everybody else. In some way to be successful in that job, you have to be selfish in a different way and put the blinkers on. I wonder, is there a way of being healthy mentally and also successful uh yeah, and I'm, I, I, there probably is. I'm sure there is. Yeah, no, uh, but um, it, it would take for me. It would take a lot of work, you know. Yeah, I, I watched a, a video on this um, very topic uh, this morning. It was just a little three minute thing that came my way through the algorithm somehow on YouTube. But um, it was just testimonies about what a great guy Keanu Reeves is, and. The fact is that he's just a really, really nice guy and everyone loves working with him. And I don't know, I know very little about, you know, films or pop culture or whatever, but, you know, seeing The Matrix and different movies he's done, like he's obviously like profoundly talented. He seems to avoid getting into the headlines for bad behavior or doing stupid stuff. And the little that you do see about him when he pops into the media, he seems to be really, really insightful and somewhat wise. But yeah, so he's managed this kind of world of success and Hollywood and all that. But yet to be defined and seen as just a really good person ultimately is the, I guess what we're talking about is being a rounded person, you know, and like what good is all your your success, whether it be financial or your CV or 
how many ratings you have if people don't ultimately think you're a nice person or they like you. Um, so I don't know. I, I think like for me, I think we have to kind of interrogate this word success a lot more. Um, there's all sorts of assumptions that we grow up with around what it means to be successful, particularly for a fella. And maybe some of it goes back to bring home the bacon type stuff. Um, but increasingly, I, I, I define success, you know, as, as being a, a kind, decent, caring person to your wife, to your family, to your community. And if you get the big, huge outwardly stuff, then good on you, fair play. But, you know, if, if you're a local plumber or a carpenter and no one's ever heard of your name outside of your parish, who cares? <laughs> you know, it's, it's, I, I don't know. I just, I question this kind of ever that, that we have to be climbing the proverbial escalator, uh, elevator or escalator, you know, going up the, the climbing the ladder, I suppose. I think uh, Keanu Reeves is a really good example because, I mean, I don't know the guy, obviously, but uh, and same as yourself, it's just from what I see and what I read. But he looks like a guy who, um, I think there's a place where you can be, do the work and be really honest and vulnerable. Um, like I, like part of me wishes I could go back and do that job in this mindset, in that a more honest, more vulnerable sort of Keith, you know, um, could I be better at the job? And, you know, I, either I could be better at the job or I'd realize this isn't the job for me, you know, but I think he obviously, you know, got himself to a place where he could be honest about the work he did. He could take on work he wanted to do. He could work with people he wanted to work with. So he was always able to say no, which is very important, which is something that I've been working on. Um, always able to set boundaries for himself which is something that I've been working on that men and women need to work on. Um, and, you know, always happy to say, I'm not going to do this X, Y, and Z because that's uncomfortable for me. I don't want to put myself in uncomfortable situations. So all those things are things that, I mean, people talk about, you know, find, do the thing you love and you'll never work a day in your life. Well, you've got to do the thing you love, but then you've also got to, within doing that thing you love, you've also got to create boundaries. You've also got to say no to people. You've also sometimes, you know, you also have to put yourself first, you know, so there's all those things that come with doing the job that you love. It's like, you know, having the ultimate respect for yourself and a weird thing for a man to say, but learning how to love yourself. And then you can start about doing the thing you love uh, and and be that plumbing or be that carpenter, or be that on the radio, whatever. But you're coming at it from the right place, then a, a place of respect for yourself and then respect for the people that you work with and respecting other people's um, uh, ways of working as well, which is a big thing. But that that all comes, you know, that all happens once you once you do your own work, you know, you, once you do your own work and you realize your own failings, you're much more open and aware of other people's. You know, ways that they need to work in, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does indeed. I've heard you um I've heard you talk about alcohol a fair bit on your own podcast which is excellent by the way and um I'm just curious to learn a little bit more for listeners of this podcast of your own you know early experiences how alcohol played a role in your life and how you've arrived at your current view of alcohol and alcohol culture specifically in Ireland 
Yeah, I mean, it's a very big question, especially this time of year coming into Christmas and we're all talking about the pubs having to close at eight and alcohol and all that kind of stuff. And the fact of the matter is, I mean, I, I'm not preachy about alcohol. I do my own thing with it and and my wife likes to drink and a lot of my friends like to drink. I don't put in or out on them. I'm happy to go to the pub. I'm happy to hang out with people drinking. It doesn't bother me. Um, but the fact of the matter is over Christmas, a lot of people are going to be sick and a lot of bad things are going to happen as a result of alcohol, which we don't really talk about. Um, but it's going to be a scary Christmas for a lot of people because of alcohol, children, wives, husbands. Um, and that's something that at some stage we need to look at because fortunately or unfortunately, a lot of people who drink are quite responsible with it, um, as in the, they can manage to get on with their lives and drink. And that they're the people you hear from the most when, when, when there is talk of, uh, the evils of alcohol, they'll be the loudest saying, well, look, I just like to go out for my few pints and I'm very good. And you're like, well, yeah, that's okay. But, you know, you're not living at home with an alcoholic and uh, being locked down for a few months with an alcoholic. So they're the people we're talking to. My own experience with alcohol was that as I got to a certain age um, and not realizing, this is only, as you said before, looking in the rearview mirror, not realizing, but I had a tremendous amount of anxiety. So drinking was like sweet release. It was like, oh my God, this is great. I feel so relaxed. Uh, this is so nice. Uh, now, I also knew that drink affected me adversely so that if I drank for a couple of days, I would be down and I would be feel sad. So I, I, I sort of, I was looking that I, I wasn't, lucky or unlucky, I wasn't, I didn't have, I wasn't an alcoholic to the point that it re- ruined everything around me. I was able to drink mostly at weekends and holidays um, and manage it in a way that it like I would never point the finger at anybody drinking because sometimes like drink has probably saved a lot of people because sometimes you need that release when you, you get through the week and you get to the weekend, you're able to have your few drinks and it's like, okay, wow, I can relax. I can live with myself. I can quieten the voices in my head. And this is like, uh, I've got I've got a break for 24 hours until I then have to Monday morning, get back up and do it all again. And that's the that was the cycle for me. It was like, you know, getting through the week as myself and my, in my, with my own thoughts in my own head, with my anxieties, and then getting to Friday and having that relief and taking my medication that would get me through the weekend and set me up badly <laughs> for the week ahead. And that was, that was just, that's what it was. Like, I, I you know, as a youngster, I drank a, probably... I drank my fair share. Like I don't look now that I don't drink, I don't look back and go, Oh, I wish I drank more. Like I definitely drank my fair share and probably possibly other people's fair shares. Like it was a lot of like crazy drinking, like book fast, but also, you know, weekends being away and, you know, getting up in the morning, 10 o'clock and starting drinking. And, um, and just, I have a lot of drink and drunk crazy stories, which are kind of funny. Um, and they could, I could have, I could continue drinking and, and have them as funny stories about me. But um, now they kind of seem a bit, um, you know, they upset me a little bit. But the thing about giving up drinking or not drinking anymore was I didn't have a conscious, it was always something in the back of my mind, like I'd love to just not drink. I'd look at people who don't drink and I'd be like, oh, I wish I just didn't drink. Or, you know, you'd, you'd look at celebrity who, who who drank a lot and then gave up and now they're you're kind of like, oh, that's, I, I want to be like that. Or, you know, um, it was always something I was aware of. If, if I was listening to an interview or watching somebody, I'd be like, I'd want them to mention how much they drank every week because then I'd know I was okay. Um, but I didn't really have a plan with regards to giving up drink. It was only when I went to therapy and did about a year's work 
that something clicked. And I don't know whether it was the vulnerability thing or the whatever thing, but I stopped. And I think it was because I dealt with whatever was going on in my head. So I didn't have that anxiety. I dealt with the stories I was carrying around. I dealt with the, 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 the beliefs and the whatever I'd grown up with. And everything was just quieter. And I felt my general mood was better. So that when it came to, I remember I, I, get, I, I gave myself a challenge a couple of years ago to give up the booze at January for 100 days. So it was 100 days of no booze. And I did that. And it came to sort of the end of the 100 days of no booze. And my wife says, oh, do you want to have a glass of wine? You know, it's, you're done now. And I was like, and I knew in that moment, I was like, I feel better now than I will after two or three glasses of wine. And I definitely feel better now than I will tomorrow morning or Monday morning afterwards. I did a thing where one of the weekends after that, I decided to drink as much as I used to from Friday to Sunday, just to see what it was I used to feel. Um, so I'd been, I had stopped drinking. It was six months into, I wasn't, hadn't drank at all. I drank for a weekend and that Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I was like, I'm never, I'm never drinking again. I hate this feeling. I felt like something terrible. I felt like something, I just had this tremendous overwhelming sense of doom, like something terrible was going to happen, but something terrible was going to happen to me. And I deserved it because I was a bad person. <laughs> I just, it was, I was like, oh my God, I completely forgot about this feeling. This is horrible. Like, it's just the weirdest thing. Like you think you, you see a guard car and you think they're going to arrest you. You see somebody looking at you sideways and you think they hate you. Like you, it's just horrible. So horrible. And I, that was it for me. I was like, right. Um, it was my little experiment and it was my, it just confirmed everything for me. And I always have that in my back pocket. When I think about having a drink, I'm like, do you remember the weekend? Do you remember how you felt afterwards? Yeah. I do. I remember. Yeah. I'm not drinking again, you know? So, so that's it. Like, it, and, and I wouldn't be, that, that's my, it's a personal thing. I think, I mean, apart from the fact that alcohol ruins a lot of people's lives and, and, and stuff. And it's a very, it's very, and a lot of people from this country die horrible deaths from, from drinking. I wouldn't be preachy about it. Um, and I'm happy to allow those around me to have a drink, but I am a very happy person not drinking. Good on you. <laughs> Um, so I think I read on Twitter or one of the platforms that you are getting back into a bit of music after a, a, a bit of a pause or a significant pause. Is that correct? Did I read that right? Are you getting back into playing a bit of guitar? Well, well, look, I'm, I'm in the middle of stringing it up. Look, I've only got two strings on and it's not tuned. Sure. What more do you this, need? Is, this is an old Yamaha. I only need two strings. <laughs> There's an old Yamaha guitar that's been hanging around for years. I think my dad bought it in the 70s. Um, and it's just been there. Uh, it needs new bits and pieces um, and new strings. And I just said the other day, I haven't, I played the guitar um, just as a hobby, just for myself. Um, I mean, I, when I was younger, I would have played, I wrote songs and did a few gigs and stuff like that. But um it's just something I think it's it, for me, the guitar in the corner was the final. Like I kind of got back into writing through therapy, I got back into I'm starting to enjoy even listening to music more now. And that was the final thing was the guitar in the corners, you know, in my head it was like, I'll get new strings for that at some stage and I'll get my I'll get the welts on my fingers back and 
and I'll, and I'll, I'll start playing even just, I went to a wedding, my niece got married recently and I was even like, I just want, I'd love to just get up and play. And I got up and sang, but somebody else played the guitar and I was like, I should be able to get up and sing three or four or five songs at a wedding. That's, you know, that would be great. So that's my plan now is to string the guitar up and get back into learning, uh, have a bunch of songs, get me welts back. And, you know, I think it's important creative release for me. So, um, and I also have a 13-year-old son and I really want him to see me playing the guitar and to get that connection between, you know, uh, joy and playing an instrument and music and all that kind of stuff. So um, and maybe it's not too... I have a 19-year-old daughter as well, so it could... <laughs> I hope it's not too late for her to see it as well. Um, he, It was funny because my son is 13 and he said, do you play the guitar? And I was like, yeah, well, yeah, it just happened in obviously over 13 years. Uh, which is kind of sad, you know. So um, that's that's the plan. Um, we'll see. I have two strings on. I'm, I'm making progress. It's slow. <laughs> Tune in next week <laughs> for the third string episode. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Excellent, yeah. Keith. Well, I, I look forward to hearing and seeing that music in, in motion. And uh, I think it's a beautiful way to end that the music is... Uh, you're, you're, you know, it's not, you're not quite getting the band back together, but it, it sounds like there's something about to brew there and uh, it's exciting to hear it. So fair play and congrats on the play and uh, on, on all that work and, and sharing um, so honestly about the therapy and, and, and the, the journey that you've been on. I think um, a lot of people will get a lot from it. So thank you. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm hoping that um, I will get a small, I'll, I'll, I'll write and release songs and I'll get a small band of followers who who are interested in listening to a person who can't quite play the guitar and can't quite, isn't the best singer, but has a lot of heart and a small amount of regret. So, <laughs> Lovely. Thanks, Keith. Be a successful, <laughs> successful indie artist. <laughs> Good man. Cheers, Rory. Thanks, Lon. Hello, Rory here again. A huge thanks to Keith for that really rich conversation and for sharing so many insights and stories. I really enjoyed the chat. Be sure to check out Keith's podcast, the Keith Walsh podcast, and keep an eye out for him on all the relevant social media platforms. If you know others who might enjoy this episode to hear Keith learn more about him, please do send send them a link and mention the podcast, the Love and Courage podcast on social media. You can tag me, Rory McKiernan, if you feel so inclined. You can help the podcast grow and reach more people by subscribing to the Love and Courage podcast in your app. You'll get notifications on new episodes and also all ratings and reviews, all that kind of stuff. It's all appreciated. And a big thanks, especially to all you podcast patrons. Really appreciate you chipping in on a once-off or monthly basis over at loveandcourage.org. And if you're new to the podcast, do check out the archives. Lots of great stuff in there, as well as in my other podcast, which is called The Creative souls of claire podcast thanks for listening thanks for being part of the love and courage community lots of love until next time